Given that it's Mother's Day today... And we've actually remembered in advance. And have set aside some time to think about our mums. And remember the things that make our mum, mum. My super mum moment was when, as a kid, um, a lad tried to sick his dog onto me. This dog was called Spike. It had attacked several people in our street and everyone was terrified of it. Spike went running away with his tail between his legs when he saw the fury of my mother coming down the road because her little child was being attacked. That's what makes her my mum. My super mum moment was when her love language is service. She was always doing for me. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, washing my clothes, cleaning my bedroom, making my bed, getting me ready for the day, staying awake until I was home. I was 26. That's what makes my mum, mum. My super mum moment was when she brought up four boys and was full-time carer for her mum uh, for the first eight years of my life. That's what makes her my mum. Um, my uh, super mum moment was probably the first, one of my first memories of my mum. And we lived what seemed like kilometres from the kindergarten. It was only a block or two, but it was pouring rain one day and she said, put your head in my neck and I'll keep you warm and dry and she carried me home. That's what makes her my mum. <laughs> my meals mum moment was, well, actually, there's a lot. Um, mum's baked rice pudding after a nice dinner was always good. Mum's steak and kidney, that because I really love kidneys, she used to make mine kidney and steak on my plate. Um, and mum's date loaf. That's what makes my mum mum. My mum's meals mum moment is when the entire family, usually about 20 people, get together every second Monday night for dinner, provided for and catered entirely by mum. And as she sits down, she starts to apologise for all the things that she's done wrong. That's what makes her my mum. My meals mum moment was Sunday roast lunch every Sunday. We fought over the wishbone. That's what makes my mum mum. Hmm, there's a bit of a um, theme amongst the first three. My meal, meals mum moment's probably an anti-meals mum moment. Um, so we're Dutch. If you know anything about Dutch food, it's not exciting. Um, and she cooked what seemed to be the same meal every night. Slight variations, but meat with veggies boiled to the point where it's almost unrecognisable. And we'd come home from school and we'd ask, what's for dinner tonight, Mum? And the stock standard answer was, strand mit stripes, which means in Dutch, poo with stripes. That's what makes my mum mum. <laughs> my nagging mum moment was several of them, actually, um, but probably the biggest one, which happened a lot, Mum would say, have you cleaned your room? I'd say, of course I've cleaned my room. She'd say, you're clean or my clean? <laughs> and quite scarily, I now say that to my kids. <laughs> That's what makes her my mum. My nagging mum moment was when she kept saying, I'm sick of tidying up after you. When are you getting out of the house? When are you going to find a girl and get yourself married? I was 26. <laughs> That's what makes her my mum. My nagging mum moment was when, how shall I put this... In a family of four boys, we struggled a little with our aim. <laughs> and should often let us know about it. That's what makes my mum mum. 
my nagging mum mum moments happened regularly. As a kid, you know, you often fall over and have a graze and the answer was always well over, which means it'll get better. And most of the time it did until, you know, if you're an older person, you remember that schoolyards and playgrounds were adventurous and you could actually injure yourself back in those days. Well, I did. I landed on my nose after falling off a ropes course and broke my nose and she said well over. And it did. It got better, but it never got straight. That's what makes her my mum. My melting mum moment was when, just before I got married, mum pulled me aside and said how much she loved me and what a pleasure it had been to have me living at home and she was going to really miss having our cuppers. And I was 29. That's what makes her my mum. My melting mum moment was when she dropped everything, no matter what it was, to take care of all the little things over the, time that, and over the months that Tatiana was in hospital. That's what made her my mum. My melting mum moment is when I see her reading a book to my children and I'm reminded to treasure those precious moments um, and to let them know that they're loved and worth spending time with. That's what makes her my mum. And my melting mum moment is every time that she took interest in us as kids and her grandkids. Ah, yes. Love you, mum. <laughs> Love you, mum. Love you, mum. Love you, mum. So this morning we wanted to recognise that, just like the seasons of the year, there are also different seasons of mothering. So here are some reflections about those different seasons. I'm Megan. I'm a mother of two young kids, Toby and Josie, and my life at the moment is a little bit like spring. Spring is the season where everything is growing. With it, there are dirty nappies, lots of crying, sleeping, or not much sleeping, feeding, and everything else that goes with that. And my experience as a mum in spring is that it is really challenging. The exhaustion is beyond exhaustion. I've never been so tired for so long in my life. Um, And with that comes forgetfulness and clumsiness and just all-round silly things that I do. Um, Like the time that I put something in the microwave for 20 minutes instead of 20 seconds, then filled the house with smoke and then lit a candle to make it smell better and forgot about that. And then Toby tried to blow it out with his teddy and burnt the teddy's nose. That was a very bad day. (laughs) There's lots of toddler meltdowns. There's Toby wanting to do cutting and pasting and puzzles and Josie wanting to do everything that he wants to do but not quite being able to yet and me being stretched so thin trying to help her and trying to help him but not really being able to do either adequately. There's so little time for just me and when I do have time to myself it is dependent on someone else giving that to me. So there are lots of challenges in this time. But then there are also those rewarding moments. I get so many smiles and giggles and they're both at the age where everything is unbelievably exciting. This morning Josie was drinking um, her water out of an actual cup and she just drank the whole thing because it was just so much fun. She loved it and was giggling the whole time. There's the um, cuddles from Toby and um, him wanting to do things just to make me feel happy or just to make me feel special or just to say I love you and it makes it all so worth it in the end. If I could ask God for one, during, one thing during this time, it would be everything, pretty much. For him to be my strength and, and to power through the tiredness, my guide and my hope when I have no idea what to do, um, I really feel like I need a lot from God in this time.
Hi, I'm Cash. I'm a mother of three to Isaac, who's eight, um, Hugo, who's four, and Munro, who's 19 months. Um, and this season of my life is a little like autumn. Autumn is the season of transition. Um, one is heading off to school each day. Um, the other is off to kinder three days a week. And Munro, well, she's at home uh, with me and basically stuck to me all day long. But I, I love it, so that's okay. I guess um, in this season I find myself juggling many things and it is a wonder that it all works. The list includes roles that we as mothers aren't really qualified for. Um, so let's see, there's school, there's kinder, there's playgroup, there's play dates, there's basketball and swimming and guitar. And on top of that, we become the taxi driver, the cleaner, the organiser, the administrator, the tutor, the personal trainer, life coach, counsellor, mediator, nutritionist and talent manager. You know how it goes. And soon we will transition into more activities for Hugo. And while Munro, I think, I think she will start fairy feet dancing soon. I know what you're all thinking, <laughs> but as her talent manager, I think she has real potential here. <laughs> My experience as a mum during autumn is that it can be really, really difficult and tiring, but relieving too as they become more independent. Major transitional milestones include our oldest organises self for school, mostly, sometimes requiring reminding, not yelling. Our second child is able to dress self, mostly, but can get very frustrated with self, requiring positive reinforcements, not yelling. <laughs> and independent, independent toileting practices have been established. And our baby, well, I guess because my older two are bigger, I really enjoy her. And I even enjoy the repeated mummy calling followed by something only she understands. In one word, it's hectic, but we always find a way, don't we? I found that children in general transition in the blink of an eye, and it's easy to miss the moments, and it's only when you look back at photos you realise they were just babies yesterday, or a little person in a uniform and a school bag half their size, and time goes by way too fast. But really the most important job is to raise happy, healthy children who will hopefully grow into valuable, good humans and make their mark in the world. And I feel really, really thankful. My children are amazing. They are a blessing to Gav and I. And amongst all the chaos in our home and through the weeks, the rewarding moments far outweigh those tiring ones. If I could ask God for one thing during this time, it would be to fill me with his love and grace, always reminding me that it is okay to say no and that I, can do, that I can't do everything and be everywhere. Give me wisdom to know how to keep myself happy and healthy so that I can continue to support and guide them in ways they need.
Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm a mother of two, Jackson 23 and Tyson 20. And this season of my life is a little like summer. Summer is the season of the heading to the beach. It's warm and your children are making their own way. There are so many enjoyable aspects of summer. But it also is the season of empty nesters. Not that I'm a complete empty nester, but it's the time they get to drive and travel, study and work, play cricket and explore the world on their own without me. As much and with it I find my role as a mother includes keeping up to date with washing dirty cricket whites, appearing out of cricket bags the evening before their next game. (laughs) It includes communication of who's home for dinner, How many extras for dinner? Who's going surfing? And who's home for a few days before the next adventure? It feels at times that I am just filling the gaps. A little like trying to restore that sandcastle masterpiece you make on the beach in summertime. The one you nearly complete with turrets and a moat until that wave comes in and washes over it and your half castle sits there alone again. My experience as a mum during summer is that it can be lonely, even though my husband is around. It's the feeling of not really being needed anymore, except for the needs of everyday life, washing, cooking, and constantly filling the fridge and pantry, and learning to spend time again with your husband, before he falls asleep on the couch watching the cricket. It's the lying awake at night listening to the snoring beside you but having an ear out for when your boys arrive home safely. But then there are those moments when they walk in the door with hi mum with their beautiful girlfriends or mates having invited them all over for a day in the pool without asking with a barbecue thrown in for dinner on warm balmy nights sharing their stories of their day of their adventures or how great the surf was. They tell me it's always better surf in the winter though. It's having our home filled with thoughtful young people, which is so good for the soul. Watching them grow in relationships with family and friends and seeing the great choices they have already made as young, gentle men. Watching them from under the shade of a tree and being able to smile and listen to their conversations as brothers and thinking to myself, I've done okay so far. My pride when they greet people within our home and their respect and love for our world's environment and for the simplicity of the outdoors and the gift of hot summer days, watching them on the cricket field and seeing their respect towards their teammates. If I could ask God for one thing during this time, it would be for me to embrace this moment that God has given me at this stage in my life. To keep them safe and to have the strength and ability to say no to the many obstacles that young people have to face. May they always know that you are their God who will embrace them love them, walk with them and shelter them when the heat and sun becomes unbearable.
Hi. I'm Pam, and I am the mother of four daughters. <laughs> I had a lot of similarities to Nandy, excuse me. <coughs> I have four adult daughters, and I'm also the mother-in-law to four boys, and I am the grandmother to six grandchildren. And I liken my season of life to that of winter. But unfortunately, I have enjoyed every season thus far as well as winter. I find that the, the season of winter is one of those ones where you tend to huddle together to keep warm. And um, I picture that sense of the, the warm fire where you warm the body as much as you warm the soul as you sit around together and talk. And I guess... Um, now that as my children have moved out of home, I find myself playing a very different role uh, to what the girls have talked about because in, in essence I actually get to sit around that fire and share life with my children and their children now. My mothering is more about um, coffee and conversations. It's about long phone calls and debriefing. It's about questions and unpacking the answers with the girls and it's about sharing stories. So in essence, it's about building relationships and sharing life together. But I still face challenges. Uh, one of my greatest challenge is that I don't impose my agenda on my children, that I'm very careful to think that just because it worked for me doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work for them. And the other great challenge is that I find that I'm often their sounding board. And if you can picture that, it's very difficult to be an awesome, incredible, present listener instead of the one who wants to give advice and be the talker in the conversation. But, you know, those moments when I see my girls and I still see their faces light up when they see me, my heart still melts when they give me a hug and a kiss on greeting and now I get a double whammy. I get my grandchildren running towards me, screaming, Nan, Nan, and uh, wrap their arms around me. At family dinners, as the decibels in the room are reaching maximum pitch when we're all together, and I have a sense of gathering my brood around me, I can feel my heart smiling. I have a, a love overload and a huge chunk of thankfulness for just being... Together, as the girls remind me of the hard times, the, the fun times, the silliness that we went through, um, and all the different stories that we share around the table. But it's all about the endless hours of spending time nurturing them through those summer, autumn and uh, spring seasons of our life. If I wanted to ask God one thing, I think I'd ask him, and often do, that I would be an incredible example to my children. As I get old, as they get older and they voluntarily think for themselves, I want to be an example of a, of a woman who loves God and lives a life that is centered on Jesus. I want to be an example of a wife who is still madly in love with her husband after all these years. I want to be an example of a mother who unconditionally loves her children and embraces their child choices in life. I want to be an example of a mother-in-law who cares and loves the boys in my children's life. And I want to be an example of a grandmother who adores her grandchildren and who continually delights in them and wants to spend time with them. And I think too I want to be an example to the other mums 
that I come in contact with and cross paths with, that they would know that through the spring and summer and autumn of your lives that you are loved, valued and that you are doing a fantastic job. Superb job this morning, the guys and the girls, didn't they? It was really good. And all the different thoughts that go through your mind and the memories of mum. I remember my, my mother. I remember just the different things that you recall. I remember her when she lost her purse. And I don't remember what age I was, but I just remember the look on her face. It was just like this incredibly, like, just petrified. And I, it still impresses on me. The, the look of my mother when she... I, I remember when my mother... Um, I had a, a party in kindergarten, and uh, I was with all the people, and I must have liked a particular girl, this is in kinder, and <clears throat> so I took her around the sideway, and um, I, I, she must have liked me, because I, I planted a kiss on her, yeah, and as I did that in kindergarten, I heard this thudding noise above me, and I looked up, and it was my mother, uh, I'd taken her around the back of the house where the kitchen was, and she was looking out, and I still remember to this day my mother going, Troy, Go back to the party, like this. And ever since that moment, it must have been a good 30 years before I kissed another girl, because I always had this thought of, there is, my mother is looking over my, my shoulder, it's mum, it's mum, you know. I remember when we took a trip to Knott's Berry Farm, and uh, there was this, this um, little loop-the-loop sort of teacup thing, going around and around, and I remember in that particular place, um, all the family was there, and mum must have still been spinning. And uh, she got off and she spun around on the, and, and fell on the ground. And the rest of the family just went, oh, this is embarrassing. And we left her there, just <laughs> left her. I, I remember that. I remember being lost in a Brisbane shopping center. Um, my whole family left me and, and a stranger found me. I remember being distraught in that place. And I'm pretty sure, I can't quite remember, but I think it was my mum who was the first one who remembered me because dad would have been wondering about who knows where he was at any particular time. And so I remember, I remember my mum growing up, sitting down in my mum bed and reading to me and praying with me. And in fact, that continued all throughout, not until I was 26 or 29, but, but this idea that I could go to mum, mum was the go-to person whenever I needed to just go, this is really stressful and this is really hard and mum would be there. So we just want to say to mums this morning, we care about you. And at the same time, sometimes mums can feel a little bit unappreciated. So we want to appreciate you today. We have another introduction, if you like, to the church family, and this is Jesse and John Obliquely. If they're here, they can raise their hands, but I don't think they are because they're still recovering. And this is little Caspian, yeah? And so when you see them, would you just give them all the advice these ladies gave this morning, and the blokes as well, because they are just soaking it up. Tonight, we've got our Sunday at 6, and that, for those that don't know, we have our youth. Every time the youth are on now, every alternate month, Sunday at 6, worship, 6 to 6.30, and then we break. And what the, the other folk that aren't youth going to be doing is learning how do we actually communicate the good news of who Jesus is, faith stuff, in a very changing world. We're going to do that over the next four weeks. So come along tonight, even though... It's Mother's Day. If you want to jump in with us this morning and you've got a Bible or if you want to look at version on your app, um, Exodus chapter 1 and 2, we're going to be beginning this series called Who Do You Think You Are? And it kind of links in with Mother's Day because it's all about looking back in the past to understand who you are in the present. Some of you watched this show before, Who Do You Think You Are? It's this wonderful idea of digging out your family tree in order to unearth some really unusual things, but at the same time, discover a little bit about who you are so they can kind of inform you a little bit about the present. 
looking back in the past to give you an understanding of who you are in the present. And so the question we're really asking this entire month is, who do you think you are? Now, as we pause here for a moment on a Mother's Day, a remembering day, I want to jump to the very beginning of the Bible for a moment, just to a quick little summary. It says in the book of Genesis, God creates and, and he loves his world. And those first human beings he had intimate relationship with, a wonderful relationship and connection with them in which they reflected who he was, his order back into the world. But then it goes on and says that that first man and woman, that Adam and Eve, they decided to actually break ranks with God and do things their own way. They mistrusted him. They turned their backs on him. And if you like, in that decisive moment, it actually released into the world a disease, a sickness. The Bible calls sin. It's this power. It's this force. It's this attitude which exists in every human being that says, God, I don't want to do what you want to do. Sounds like a kid to a mum, doesn't it? I want to do what I want to do. And all kinds of pride and envy and greed, if you like, infected God's good world. And it was broken, turned the whole thing upside down. But God in his love determined to say he wanted to fix it, restore it. He tried the Noah thing. If we start again with the human race, but that disease was still there. And so it says centuries ago that one man God revealed himself to and made a promise to him by the name of Abraham. He was going to do something powerful to fix the world and fix human beings to bring them back to himself. And it started with a promise. And God promised to this man, Abraham, as he looked out into the night sky, said, Abraham, through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. Someone will come from you and you will be part of a one united family in the entire world that actually will put wrongs to right, if you like, and actually be part of fixing a broken world. It says shortly after that in the book of Genesis that God actually said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. He made a promise. And then he made a covenant, an agreement sealed in blood. He said, I have given you this land where you're dwelling right now, Abraham, and all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River will be yours. And he sealed it, if you like, contractual basis in blood. And so that's the pre-story, if you like, to where we pick up today in this book of Exodus. Now, I have a university mate who said many years ago, because it's not been too soon since I was at university, he said, Troy, my favorite movie is in Charlton Heston in the story of Exodus. I said, why is that? He said, I love it when God says to Moses, now Moses, thou shalt go. He said, I love that part. It's brilliant. And that's where we're going to be picking up things today, because part of Abraham's family, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, all find themselves down in Egypt, and they're living and they're dwelling there, and not all things are going well for them. In fact, historically, it's hard to set and know exactly what the timing is for this, but they suggest perhaps around the 13th century where Ramesses and the Great Pyramids were being built. We find that Abraham's family is residing in Egypt, and it's hard for them, and it's difficult for them, because they are being oppressed by the Egyptians. And when a pharaoh of a new dynasty comes to the throne, he looks at all of the Hebrew people, the, the people that were the Israelites from that family of Abraham, and he says this, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us, the Egyptians, and are stronger than we are. We must take a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if a war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our country. There was a fear that descended over all of Egypt. And so what they did is they put taskmasters in, in charge of them and they forced them to hard labor, making bricks, erecting cities, python, 
and Ashopra. They were two cities, that were storage cities that they built along the way. Hardship befell this group of people. Well, it didn't actually stop them. They continued to multiply, and so that fear turned to dread. And so what they did was Pharaoh called the uh, Egyptian midwives, so the Hebrew midwives, and he called them to himself, and he asked them to do something that no one should ever ask a midwife to do. He said, when you find that the, the women are giving birth, if it's a girl, I want you to keep it. But if it's a boy, I want you as the midwife to take the life. You can imagine the kind of oppression that they were under now. Pharaoh was asking them to do some cleansing. We would call that ethnic cleansing, a genocide. But it says the Hebrew midwives decided they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they didn't. And the Hebrew people continued to multiply. They kept the babies alive, the boys. And so when they came and Pharaoh heard about this, he called them in and he said, what's going on? You haven't been doing what I asked you to do. And they say this. They say, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. The midwives replied, they are more vigorous and they have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. They have them and then they're gone. Now, this leads me to a great story about my second born child who was, I won't go there. <coughs> it's okay, bro. It happened quickly. And this is the excuse they gave. Somehow, I'm not sure if Pharaoh let it slide, but the Hebrew people continued to multiply. Fear, dread, threat. And then Pharaoh said, I want to make a decree. Every Egyptian person must be in on this with me. What I'd like you to do is whenever you see a little child that's a boy born to the Hebrew family, I want you to take that little child and what is a source of life for us in Egypt, the Nile, I want you to take that child and I want you to throw it in the river and make it a source of death. So you could imagine the terror and the fear and, and, and the absolute tyranny that these people were under. Provides a perfect backdrop in chapter 2 to the introduction of a man and a wife who fall in love, both from the house of Levi, and it says they have a child. Well, you can imagine a mother in the nine months while she's pregnant and this little baby is growing. You could imagine the fear. Could you imagine the, the prayer of the mother during that time? God, would you make this a girl? God. Let it be a girl. I don't want it to be a boy. Let it be a girl. I can't imagine someone else taking my child, if it's a little baby boy, and doing this. Well, sure enough, the child is born. And it's a boy. You can't imagine, can you? The pain, the fear would have descended upon that little family. After three months, it says, when they couldn't keep the, the child from, from making noise so that would be found out, this mother was asked to do something that no mother should have to. It says in her desperation, she wove some papyrus leaves together. She, she made a snug little boat. And, and she put tar on the edges to make it as tight and as fitting and as safe as possible. And so she put that little baby in that basket. 
and in an act of desperation that would have been equivalent to a mother placing a, a child at the steps of a hospital, who's so desperate and, and out of her clear thinking and so frustrated and, and at her wit's end that she cannot think of anything else and she places this child in the basket, her baby boy, in the bulrushes of the Nile and steps back. And it's at that time the story goes on she couldn't hide him no longer. She got a basket. She made these things. And on the bank of the river, the Nile, she set the baby into the reeds. And the baby's sister, Miriam, then stood at a distance and began to watch to see what would happen. Wow. And then it so happens that Pharaoh's daughter, it says, goes down to the Nile to bathe. And she sees a basket in the bulrushes. And she calls out to one of her maidens and she says, would you come and take that, that little basket and bring it to me because I want to know what's inside. She's curious. The basket's brought to her. She opens it up and she discovers a little boy. And she recognizes straight away, this must be one of the Hebrew boys that have been born. And it says in that moment, this woman has compassion for this little child. And she takes him and she holds him. And then Miriam, in an ingenuity kind of way, she steps in and she speaks up and she says, would you like a nurse, someone to feed this child whilst it grows? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. And she gives the child back to his sister. The sister takes it to the mother and the mother feeds this child and allows it to grow until it's old enough. In which it says, later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who then adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Wow. And there in that place, the rescuing of a, a young little baby boy by the name of Moses. Now he is, if you like, invited into the palace of privilege. And he grows up in a royal family. Until one day, it says, when he's older, he steps out to sea and he sees the plight his people are under. Not having lost his connections with his own family, he steps out and he sees them. And he sees an Egyptian taskmaster killing and, and beating up on one, one of his own people. So what does he do? When no one's watching, he acts decisively as a leader. He sees their distress. He knows their cries and he kills the Egyptian slave master. Buries him in the stand and goes back to the palace. Well, the story goes on. Then the very next day, he goes out again, perhaps to see if there's anyone else oppressing his people. He's a would-be leader. And he sees two Hebrew, his brothers, fighting with one another. And he goes and separates them, and he says, why are you fighting? And they both turn on him, and one of them says, are you going to do to us what you did to the Egyptian slave master yesterday? And then he realizes the words got out. And so he flees and runs away into a, a far-off land by the name of Midian. And it's this land where the Midianites live. And it's a distant land because he knows that Pharaoh is after him. Well, jumping ahead very quickly, the story goes, he meets a lady. He meets seven daughters who are at a well who are herding their own flocks of goat and sheep. And he, he actually defends them to the other shepherds who are trying to move them on. They, the ladies go back to their dad, Ruel, and they say, he says, why are you back so soon from the watering station? He said, well, there was this guy <laughs> and he was protecting us. He said, well, why didn't you bring him home with you? I mean, I've got seven daughters and I'd like to have. And so they go and they find Moses and they bring him back and he stays for 40 years. He marries one of the daughters and then it's time for him to have a child. He has a little baby, and he's a son. And in the far-off place where he feels isolated from life and his own family, 
This is what he names his son, Gershom. Because he says, I've been a foreigner in a foreign land. There in the place of non-remembrance and forgetfulness, where Moses, having been brought up in the house of privilege in that royal palace, is now far away from his own family and relieving the oppression of his people. And he has a child of his own and he wonders through its name. God, do you hear? God, are you there? God, do you remember? The truth is sometimes parents feel unappreciated and children can feel forgotten. And in our busy world of doing so many busy things and of setting ourselves to so many tasks, it's easy, isn't it, to wonder, God, do you hear? God, do you care? God, will you remember? What Moses didn't understand, and we'll discover in the next three weeks, is that in that place of patience, God was preparing him to do a mighty act, but in his timing. Whilst in a faraway land, it says these words. And the sons of Israel, when a new, if you like, Pharaoh came to reign, wondered if he was going to be someone that would be more compassionate. But he wasn't. So because of the bondage, they cried out. And their cry for help became uh, help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. See, the powerful story of Moses is that when it was in God's timing, he was very clear. You are not forgotten, my people. You are not forgotten the promises that I made to Abraham. You are not forgotten. I hear your cry. I see what's going on in your world, in your life. And you are remembered. You are known. You are not forgotten. And I'm here. You might be sitting here this morning and you say, Troy... You ask me, who do I think I am? Who I am is really a product of where I've come from. And my story is not Moses' story. My story is not Abraham's story. I don't know if God cares, hears, sees, or cries for me. That's Moses' story. That's not mine. Jump forward 1,300 years. A son is born. God's son. He lives and he dies and he rises again. And Paul, a follower of his, writes in a book called Galatians these powerful words. For anyone who would place their faith, their simple trust in Jesus. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And you have all been united with Christ in baptism and put him on like putting on new clothes. There is no longer identity markers of Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And now that you belong to him, you are the true children of Abraham. 
And you are heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You see, God's promise to you this morning is that if you place your faith in Jesus, he welcomes you and adopts you and brings you in to his family. The promises made to Abraham, the promises, if you like, that Moses experienced become yours. If you like, he grafts you in and he welcomes you as one of his own. He washes you clean, forgives you and fills you with a new presence, his spirit, so that you might be fixed and be part of, if you like, God's family to change and transform this world until he comes again. You see, the wonderful promise of God on this remembering day, this Mother's Day day, is that no matter who you are or where you've been, or what's been done to you. Or perhaps what you've done to others. There's a God. Who calls you home. Who welcomes you in. And now Moses becomes your great, 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 great. And go on. Grandfather. My friends. For anyone who placed their trust in Jesus, this is who you are. The recipient of God's love, welcomed into his eternal family, heirs of a future and a destiny that nothing else can afford you. The promise is for you. And you. And you. Who are you? Craig's going to come up in a moment. And Cindy, we're going to sing a song. But I want you to think for a moment. Because I wonder here on this particular day, if some of you might come grieving. I didn't have a family like that. I didn't actually have the privileges that he had. I didn't have, I didn't have. And I wonder if God might be saying to you, who do you think you are? You are a son and a daughter of God. And you are welcome to experience all the privileges. And when you do, I tell you this. You are remembered and will always be remembered. You're remembered. Who you are is my son and my daughter. Robed in all the riches of royalty that come from God. Some actions this week. Wonder if for some of you, you just need to sink this down and go, God, if this is true, would you please help me understand who I really am in you? Maybe for others of you, there's a grieving moment. And you wonder, God, could you turn my past bad stuff into good? Believe his promises, yes. I don't know how it all works out, but I know in the end, it does. God sees, God hears, God will respond, and he remembers. I wonder this morning if the first thing you need to do is make a call and express some appreciation for those who don't always feel appreciated. Or maybe afterwards, receive some prayer, allow God to work in your life.
Who do you think you are? You are remembered. Remember that. You're remembered by God. In response, why don't you sing, worship this powerful, profound God this morning?